Well, good morning. It's great to be back here. Thank you for that uh, flattering introduction. I'm not sure if I'm the bigger sinner for enjoying it or he is for flattering, but <laughs> anyway, we'll move on. And thank you to the worship team for those songs. That was wonderful. Uh, that last hymn is actually a song that <coughs> Trish and I had chosen to sing at our wedding. Uh, I won't say how many years ago, but uh, it's been a special song for us over many, many years and over many, many miles. Also, thank you to the missions team, the missions committee here for their theme for these weeks, the theme of follow me. I think that is a wonderful theme for a missions conference. And if you were to do a search on the words follow me in scripture, just a quick search, you'd find that uh, probably all of them, I, there may be one or two instances outside of the Gospels, but all of them are in the Gospels uh, where Jesus, of course, is, is present and he's telling his disciples and other people to follow him. It's interesting that if you look at those instances of when he uses those words, follow me, they're at the beginning, throughout the middle, and all the way up to the very end of Jesus' time on earth. So following isn't something you just do once and you're done. It, it's ongoing, and we'll be talking about that later. I'm going to preach this morning from the text where Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry. And the text this morning comes from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. So if you have your copy of Scripture, digital or printed or however you read your, the Word of God, please open to Mark chapter 1 verses 14 to 20. And if you'll do me the favor, let's, let's stand as we read, just as a sign of respect for the Word of God, shall we? If you're able, not, not. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets, and immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Let's open with a word of prayer, shall we? <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing each of us into this room this morning. We thank you that you have so guided and directed uh, the paths of our lives that you have caused us to gather here. And we thank you for your word that you have given to us, the word that nourishes and feeds our souls. And so, Father, I pray now that you would remove all distractions. Holy Spirit, come and be present in this place. And may all those things that would take our minds away from what's going on here be, be calmed and removed. Father, I know there's a lot going on. 
There's football games over the weekend. There's elections coming up in the next week. And yet, Lord, what's important now is your word. And we pray that you would feed us and nourish our souls. Lord, I pray that the, the sermon that is heard would far exceed the sermon that is preached. And that you would move in our midst and cause us to see Jesus in a way that maybe we haven't seen him before. So do this in our hearts this morning, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the text we just read, we see Jesus beginning his ministry and calling the first disciples to come follow him. It's important we get a little bit of context here. The time is, says in verses 14 and 15 that it was after John was arrested. John the Baptist had been arrested by Herod and imprisoned because he had spoken out against Herod's illicit marriage. This is also after Jesus' baptism. We see that in verses 9 to 11. And it's also after Jesus, after his baptism, went out into the desert, into the wilderness, to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. We see that in verses 12 and 13. Now, if you were just to read Mark, you'd think that this came immediately after that. But we know from other Gospels and from the way uh, Jesus, from the, the facts of his life, that this, this time now that we're reading about when Jesus actually calls these men happens probably several months and even possibly up to a year after the events of his baptism and his time in the wilderness. Jesus is now beginning the more public season of his ministry. And from the outset, he's purposefully bringing those along who have been specifically chosen by him to carry his work forward after he knows he will leave. All those other events, the baptism and the time in the wilderness, those happened in the south part of Israel. But now it says... Jesus came into Galilee. This is the place. This is the northern part of Israel. This is, this is the overlooked part of Israel. This is far removed from the religious and political and power centers of the day. Galilee was, if you will, flyover country. It was often belittled and, and talked about negatively. It was neglected and even ridiculed. ridiculed. And it certainly wasn't taken very seriously. If you recall the words of Nathaniel in John chapter 1, he says, when, when he's introduced to Jesus, can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, Nazareth was a city in Galilee. And yet this is exactly where Jesus goes when he officially starts his earthly ministry. Jesus was choosing his disciples not from the Ivy League universities of the north, northeast, nor from the prestigious West Coast schools, but from the neglected and overlooked regions where people majored in hard work and hard knocks. And what was Jesus doing? Well, he came proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. A better translation would actually be be repenting and be believing. There's an ongoing nature to this. And if we were to stop the sermon here and I could just say the best way to sum up the words follow me would be be repenting and be believing in Jesus. But we need to say a little bit more. You see what Jesus is doing here is he's announcing a new era in redemptive history. It's an era that still has yet to unfold but he has started it. It has been inaugurated. 
Jesus' message is in line with what John the Baptist had been preaching. John is the last prophet, if you will, of the old covenant, and now Jesus is coming in and ushering in this new era of redemptive history. And he's come as a king, a king of a new kind of kingdom, the kingdom of God. This kingdom is a spiritual kingdom that is breaking in, has broken into the status quo of normal life. It's a spiritual kingdom, but it's also one that bursts through and into the physical realm. And it crosses all geopolitical and all temporal and all physical boundaries. Yeah, Jesus still had work to do. He still had his ministry, his life, his death, and his resurrection. But from the very beginning, he is setting in motion the means and the instruments that later, empowered by the Holy Spirit, would continue that work. Jesus was coming to accomplish salvation. But that salvation by his spirit and through he, these, these instruments would need to be applied to every tribe and tongue and people and nation in every age going forward. And that's what's going on in this text. So as we look now at verses 16 to 20, we're going to look at four things. We're going to look first at the recipients of the call. Who is this call to? The recipients. We're going to look at the nature of the call. What kind of call was this? We're going to look at the promise of the call. And finally, we'll look at the purpose of the call. Four things. The recipients, the nature, the promise of the call, and the purpose of the call. So let's look first at the recipients. Who is being called? Well, these were average, common, Galilean fishermen. There are two sets of brothers. There's Simon, later called Peter, and Andrew. And then their acquaintances, probably their business partners, James and John. This was probably, they probably had a small family-owned fishing co-op business with at least a couple boats, and they worked with their father, Zebedee. They were hard-working artisans, probably middle class. They did have some employees, some hired servants. But these men were not highly educated, not highly trained in the law or in religion. They didn't come, as we've already said, from centers of influence. They were Galilean. But it's also important to note that these men had previously met Jesus. If you read John chapter 1, when Jesus was baptized, we see that these four uh, men had probably been there at that time. But they were common, average, and unremarkable men, probably again, as we've said, a part of that day's middle working class. Nothing fancy, nothing flashy. Simply plying their trade, working to make ends meet, and generally minding their own business. Certainly, they weren't the type of men we'd select for starting a global movement. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's choosing these men as his agents, and he's purposefully and actively seeking them out. It reminds me of the verse in, second, in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 to 29. Here, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, and he says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's important to realize that although Paul uses the phrase, uh, talks about the normalcy and the lowness of those who Jesus calls, he also uses the phrase, not many, several times. This is because Jesus isn't bound to use only lower middle class people in his work. He used Paul himself, who was a man of towering intellect. And and a few chapters later, we see he calls Matthew as one of his disciples, a man who was almost certainly of considerable means. So Jesus draws men and women from every part of society. And the first main point here is that whatever our backgrounds, we bring nothing to the table. If we come from the elite or we come from the lowest parts of society, we bring nothing to the table. None of what we have either limits or merits Jesus' decision to call us. None of this gives us a leg up or a leg down in his eyes. We aren't called based on what we add to the team. Jesus doesn't recruit based on skills, on pedigree, on income, on education, on social standing, on race, gender, accomplishments, or how many followers we have on Twitter. None of this matters. None of it impacts his calling. None of us possesses anything by which we can boast. But there's a second truth here that's very important, and we must hold these truths together. Although none of us brings anything to the table, none of us is indispensable, and that should provide us with a great deal of humility There's a second truth that is also very important to remember, and that is that there isn't anyone that God can't use. God uses and calls people from all types of places to reach all types of people. He uses blind beggars, he uses average blue-collar workers, he uses wealthy businessmen, and he uses elite scholars. None of us brings anything to the table, but God isn't limited by what he can use either. One of those gives us great humility, the other gives us great honor. But let's look at these men again. Not only were they average, common Galilean fishermen, they were also spiritually immature. Sometimes we have the wrong idea about the apostles, don't we? We think of them as these spiritual giants. Well, they didn't start out that way, that's for sure. In fact, like us, they too were wretched sinners. And if we were to trace their lives and their activities throughout the gospel, we would see just a few things. They were, they were impetuous. They did things without thinking. They were rash. They stuck their feet in their mouths, saying the wrong things. They were arrogant and proudful, wanting to be at Jesus' right hand. Hello. They were fearful. They were angry, they had temper issues. James and John, who we read about here, were even called the sons of thunder. They lacked sympathy and love for others. There was a time when parents were bringing their children to Jesus and the disciples were turning them away. Really? They lacked humility. They lacked faith and courage. They lacked the foresight to see what Jesus was doing or even the ability to grasp his teaching. And they didn't even really know how to pray. 
This quick overview would, would seem to in, indicate that Jesus had a very serious HR problem on his hands. And again, they brought nothing to the table. Friends, we're in the same condition as they were. We bring nothing to the table. And yet, Jesus can use each one of us. These guys were a few spiritual knuckleheads from flyover country. We are much the same. But let's turn our attention now from who he called to what he did. Let's look at the nature of the call. It's important to realize, first of all, that this is a call, but it's also a command. It's not an invitation. It's not a suggestion. It's not an idea to be considered. I say this because that's how we tend to treat it. We tend to treat it as an invitation, but it's a command, and it's a command that does need to be obeyed. Now, I'll admit, obedience to this call doesn't look the same for everyone across the board, but nonetheless, we cannot forget that this is a command. And it's, what kind of command is it? Well, I think it's a command that can be summarized with one word, it's divine. And we're gonna look at just quickly four ways in which this is a divine command. First, it's divine because of who spoke it, its origin. Mark is very clear about who this Jesus is that is speaking to these men this, on this morning in Galilee. In verse one of chapter one, Mark says that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God. 10 verses later in verse 11, at his baptism, we hear a voice from heaven announcing, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. So there's no confusion as to who is calling these men. This is a divine command from the divine son of God himself. Jesus also says, follow me, him and him alone. No agenda. No program, no method, no movement, not even a pastor or a teacher replaces that. Remarkably, we don't even follow a religion. We follow Jesus. Follow me, Jesus says, me alone, the divine son of God. Of course, those other things I mentioned can help us follow him. They could be instrumental in our, in our following, and, but don't get off track. This is why we call ourselves Christians because we follow Christ. And how do we do that today when he's not standing right in front of us? Well, he's given us the scriptures, hasn't he? The scriptures that show us what it means and what it looks like to follow him. And he's also given us the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us in this, this task and to correct us and convict us when we go astray. So don't let anything distract or dissuade or deter us from following Jesus. But another thing is it's a divine command from a divine, uh, with a divine object or divine origin, but it also comes with divine initiative. Notice these men are busy with their own affairs. They're not really seeking Jesus out. Yes, they've known him and they know about him, but they're, going, they're back at work, working hard, and this is very different from what rabbis did at this time. Generally at this time, there were many rabbis, teachers in Israel that were going around and had followers. But they typically would take applicants and then choose who they wanted out of a list of applicants. Jesus doesn't do that. He, he's already chosen. He goes out and takes the initiative. 
Simon, Andrew, James, and John did not wake up that morning thinking this was the day that they would change forever the trajectory of their lives. No. This calling came from a divine initiative. Jesus went and found them, not the other way around. It wasn't in their plans, but it certainly was in Jesus' plans. Thirdly, this, this divine command comes with divine authority. It comes with divine power. Notice in verse 18, it says, immediately. There's no hesitation, no second guessing, no discussion, no pre-planning, none of that. They simply dropped everything. If you, if you look at what the text said, they didn't even put their nets away. Now, commentators like to look at this and point out the radical obedience that these men put on display that morning. And it is true, it is a radical obedience. But I think if we move straight to radical obedience, we miss Mark's point. Mark's focus, Mark's point here, his emphasis, is on who is calling and the authority and the power that is part of that call. It is a call that produces the obedience for which it called. The Word of God produces what it commands. It is therefore a creative word, much like what God did at creation. He said, let there be, and it was. Now, God speaks again through His Son, follow me, and they followed. This call puts God's power and authority on display. Now, our response is important, and we're going to talk about that shortly, but it's just that. It's a response. Without the divine command, we'd neither have the ability to respond nor the call to respond to. So let me be crystal clear. Any teaching or movement or doctrine that elevates man's response, human obedience, over divine initiative, divine authority, divine power, divine creative power, has gotten things backwards. We must not shift the emphasis from Jesus to man. The divine Son of God calls, He initiates, He creates by the power of His Word. We respond. We respond in faith. And as we'll see, it's a faith that He also creates and gives. This divine power and authority is the same power and authority that Jesus invokes later when he speaks these same words to these, these words to these same men, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore, the command, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But it's also a divine command that comes with divine provision. It's not a divine command that just gets the ball rolling. It doesn't just get the following started. It comes with divine provision and sustaining grace to get the call to its desired end. Jesus wasn't just recruiting. He was recruiting with intent. He had the intent to transform and to ensure that his desires, his desired purposes would be accomplished and achieved. And so this brings us to the next point. What is the divine promise? 
It's interesting to observe in scriptures how many of the calls that God gives come are accompanied by a promise. Think about Abraham. God calls him to leave his land, his family, his relatives, and he promises what? I will give you offspring. I'll give you a land. I'll make you a great blessing. Here we see the call to follow me, Jesus says. And this comes with a promise, a promise of transformation. And in the verses we just read, Matthew 28, there's a call to go and make disciples. And what's the promise? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So a divine command comes with a promise. Now what are some thoughts about this promise? Well, it's, it comes with certainty, with surety. I will make you, Jesus says. Because this is a promise from the Son of God, it's absolutely certain. It's not in question. Jesus will accomplish what he sets out to do. Nothing can thwart his plan, his purpose, or his word. That's because he is not only the promiser and the creator, he's also the perfecter and the completer of what he says he will do. The outcome is not in doubt. This is much like what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And the same is true today. It's hard to imagine a more encouraging message for those of us following Jesus. We are called to follow Christ and are given divine provision and sustaining grace in all things. And through the Holy Spirit, He will ensure that that work that he has to do in us and through us will be done. Notice that this comes also with a process. I will make you become. Now we in the West, we in this country, we like quick fixes. We like fast food. We like things to happen quickly. Just add water type of thing. But this is a process. This is a promise with a process. It's a call to become. It takes time. And this is critical. It's a process that Jesus oversees from beginning to end. He wants us first to become and later to think about doing. We do do as we become, but the becoming is always what takes primacy. The primacy is on his work in us, not on our work for him. I emphasize this because we so often get it wrong, don't we? We emphasize the need for radical obedience. We understand something, go do it. Without emphasizing the prior need for radical dependence on God's gracious work. We get into the mindset that we are here to serve the Lord and to do God's work when really, most of the time, our focus should probably be on what is God doing in us. And so only when we're properly fixated on Him and what He's done and what He's doing in us and others will we be in the proper place to go about doing what He wants us to do. So let's look. What did He do in these men? Well, the impetuous and the rash, He turned into the patient and the wise. The proud, He made humble. The fearful he made bold. The angry he made gracious. The unloving he turned into loving people. 
the faithless into the faithful, the timid he gave hearts of courage, to those who were aimless and purposeless he made into dedicated followers and, and workers for his purposes. To the prayerless, he turned, uh, turned them into prayer warriors. And to these immature, he grew them into rocks of faithful maturity. This is what Jesus did in these men. Through his gospel of repentance and faith, he transformed them from the inside out. It wasn't their ability, their strength, their willpower, or their spiritual acumen on display. It was God's power and grace at work in their lives over time. And the world would see it. And the world would realize, as it says in Acts, that these men had been with Jesus. Friends, those of us who have seen and experienced this in our own lives know this process, don't we? We know that we were lost sinners and that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and that Jesus came to us and drew us to himself however and whenever he did that. And we know that since that time, he's not stopped working in us. We know the power of the Holy Spirit working in us to shape us and mold us. And for those of us that are in that situation, it's good and important to ask ourselves some questions. Am I more transformed than I was six months ago, a year ago, five years ago? Do I treasure Jesus more than I did then? Is, are my affections for him growing? Do I cling to him more than I cling to my nets and my boats, to my family and my job? These are good questions to ask. But perhaps you're here this morning and, and you don't know this calling or this transforming power in your life. You, you've maybe seen it in others. Be assured, Jesus has not stopped calling people to himself. He has not ceased calling, calling all of us to follow him. We may be, you may be feeling called this morning. If so, answer his call and seek out someone to talk to. Jesus' call is one to follow him and to be transformed by him into someone he will use for his purposes and his glory. This is the good news. This is the wonderful news. This is the gospel. And so this brings us now to our final point. What is the divine purpose? And we find that in verse 17 where it says, I will make you become fishers of men. The divine purpose of Jesus' call is that these men would become fishers of others, men and women. Jesus was talking to fishermen here and they would have understood his language fairly well. Uh, it's something probably that we don't understand as well today, especially in, in uh, mostly landlocked Illinois. Today, we look at fishing as more of a hobby or a recreational activity. We do it to release stress and to get away from the hustle and bustle of life, or we do it on vacation to get away from people. This is not, emphatically not, what Jesus had in mind. And it's not what these men would have thought. They knew what fishing entailed in the first century. For starters, it was brutally hard work. It often meant being up all night on choppy seas in dubiously constructed vessels. And then it meant spending most of the next day processing the catch, mending nets, and preparing to do it all over again the following night. 
These men had no highly engineered boats, no strong nylon nets manufactured by machines and factories. They had no outboard or inboard motors to scoot them around the Sea of Galilee. They had no refrigeration to preserve their catch and their potential income. They didn't have seven-day weather forecasts, no radios, cell phones, satellite phones to call for help, and certainly no Coast Guard to come rescue them. To understand what Jesus was calling them to, we need a realistic view of what fishing was in the first century, and these men would have understood. He was not calling them to a recreational hobby. Instead, he was calling them to something that they were all too familiar with. Hard work, high risk, dangerous environments, and little in the way of safety nets. But it's important also to realize where this language, fishers of men, comes from. It's bursting with meaning from the Old Testament. If you were to turn to Jeremiah 16, 16, here God is talking to his prophet Jeremiah. He's telling him that he's going to punish his people, the Israelites, the Jews, for the rebellion against him and for their pervasive idolatry. He's going to punish them by banishing them and exiling them and scattering them among the nations. Their homeland and their temple will be destroyed, their way of life will be no more, and they'd be at the mercy of their captors in foreign lands. But that's not the end of what Jesus, of what God is doing with his people. At the right time, when they were repentant for their rebellion, God was going to restore his people and bring them back together again. And how would he do this? He says this in Jeremiah 16:16. 16, 16. He says, behold, listen carefully. I'm going to send for many fishermen. And he goes on, and they will fish for them, his scattered people. And afterwards, I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt them from every mountain and every hill and from the clefts and the rocks. The point here is that when Jesus tells these men that he will make them fishers of men, he is calling them to the fulfillment of this prophecy. He is calling them to become the means, the instruments, through which he is going to accomplish this divine promise that was made 500 years earlier. He's setting in motion his purposes to achieve the great ingathering of his people who are scattered throughout every nation. He is calling them to become laborers in his kingdom. Jesus was setting all of this in motion that morning next to the Sea of Galilee. And this purpose continues today. These men were faithful to the call. Jesus still calls, calls us to become fishers of men because there are still his people scattered throughout the world who he once gathered into his family. His table is not full. He still is building his church and he still graciously and divinely calls us and makes us into his instruments to see his divine purpose accomplished, to see his people gathered his sheep gathered from every mountain and hill and the clefts of the rocks. It's important to realize, though, that any call to something is also a call away from something. And these men understood it that morning. This is the way it always works. Look at what these men set aside. When they, what, they, what did they abandon that day? They left their nets and their boats. They left their servants they even left their father behind. 
They walked away from their secular vocations, from their livelihoods, from their professions. They set aside financial security and stability, and they embraced a downward mobility, both financially and socially. In a sense, they relegated themselves to flying the middle seat of coach and driving high-mileage cars and living in fixer-uppers. They gave up family. They gave up working with their father. They gave up living in the same town and having their kids grow up near their grandparents. You get the idea. Following Jesus and becoming an instrument in the building of his kingdom does include setting aside other pursuits, other dreams, and other desires. Now, again, this does not look the same for everyone. It's always different, and there are seasons of life that change as well. But there will always, always be something that we need to set aside if we are going to keep Jesus first and foremost in our lives. There is an intense commitment that is required. Now, some look at this and they bemoan the loss. Some look at it and flee from the loss. But that's not what these men did. They did not put their hand to the plow and look back. There was no hesitancy, no second guessing, no wringing of their hands. They dropped everything and immediately followed Jesus. This was that radical obedience I mentioned earlier. It reminds me of the famous pioneer missionary to Africa in the 1800s named David Livingston. He suffered all kinds of hardship and disease and troubles. And once when he was back in England, he was speaking to a group of students and he said this. He said, people talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. He goes on and says, away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger, now and then, with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this be only for a moment. All these things are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. And then he closes with this. David Livingston says, I never made a sacrifice. Now let me ask, what possible explanation can there be for this type of perspective, for this type of response? Was this man off his rocker? The only explanation is that through the eyes of faith, David Livingston, the disciples, and many, many others had come to see and regard a life of total abandon to Christ as far exceeding anything else this world could possibly offer. These men and all who follow like them, to them, Jesus had become that pearl of great price, that exceeding joy, that priceless treasure, for which they would willingly and gladly part with everything else this world could offer. Jesus became so beautiful, so attractive, so irresistible that everything else paled in comparison. Friends, if we set our eyes only on the things that we are called away from, the things that we must abandon, if we look at everything the call takes away, 
It does look radical and daunting. But when we see what we are called to, when we, through faith, see all that Jesus is and all that he gives and all that he provides, it really is a no-brainer. Now I can hear the rebuttals and the questions. Am I supposed to walk away from my job, not even give a two-week notice? Am I supposed to uproot my family and take the kids out of school and move overseas or, God forbid, to California? (laughs) The answer is, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. God will make that clear to you. What we see in Scripture that these men did, at, we do see in Scripture that these men did at times go back to their fishing. The, but the point is, is that their lives, everything was totally reoriented to following Christ. I said earlier that obedience looks different for everyone, and that's true. But the fact is, is that being obedient and responding to Jesus means clinging to him and holding everything else loosely. This kind of faith, to live this kind of life, definitely is a gift from God. So we might conclude by saying it this way, radical obedience, or at least obedience that looks radical to the world, must be preceded and accompanied by a resolute faith. Otherwise, it's useless. It's nothing but dead works. In the book of Romans, Paul goes to great lengths to to communicate what obedience for a Christian looks like. Obedience in the Christian life must be grounded on, rooted in, and built on faith. Paul has a phrase called the obedience of faith. And he opens the book of Romans and he closes the book of Romans by referring to this. Romans 1.5 says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And then if you jump forward to Romans 16, verses 25 and 26, Paul says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. So here's the main point. Resolute faith in Jesus and the gospel proceeds, produces, provides for, and preserves the radical obedience of following Jesus. Let me say that again. Resolute faith in Jesus and the gospel proceeds, produces, provides for, and preserves the radical obedience of following Jesus. If Jesus isn't our focal point, our priority, and our treasure, then any act of radical obedience is simply a display of dead works. And you don't have to look far to see dead works. Trisha and I work with Muslims. They work very hard. And yet they do not have the obedience of faith. Their lives are marked by obedience, but it's not the obedience of faith. People who have the obedience of faith, grounded in faith, are so radically in love with Jesus that they become the type of people that attract other people to Jesus. They become the bait that makes others say, I want what you have. 
So this then is the secret of becoming fishers of men. We become fishers of men when we, through faith in Jesus and the gospel, so value and treasure Jesus that the world takes notice, marvels, and finds itself desiring Jesus too. Do we follow Jesus in this way? Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news. No, it's the best news. It's the news that the God of the universe became man. That Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth, walked into all the mud and muck and filth and sweat and tears and the fishy stench of our lives and called us to himself. He calls to us to by faith believe in, to trust in, to embrace, to treasure, and to value him, and to set aside and forsake all other things, and to follow him and him alone. And in so doing, he will make us become fishers of men. He bestows on us that privilege, that honor, of having a place in the coming and in the building of his great eternal kingdom. And all of this for our great joy and for his unspeakable glory. Amen.